0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm Jacob Kyle. My guest today is Shoken Michael Stone. Michael Stone illuminates the ancient teachings and practices of Vipassana meditation, yoga, and Mahayana Buddhism for a post-millennial age. Internationally recognized as a transformative visionary, teacher, and agent of social change, his work manifests the fusion of committed spiritual practice and social action. Michael is a fellow in residence at the University of British Columbia. He's also the author of several books, The Inner Tradition of Yoga, A Guide to Yoga Philosophy for the Contemporary Practitioner, Yoga for a World Out of Balance, Teachings on Ethics and Social Change, Awaken the World, Teachings from Yoga and Buddhism for Living an Engaged Life, and Freeing the Mind, Free, Freeing the Body, Freeing the Mind, Writings on the Connections Between Yoga and Buddhism. He's also, author, also the co-author of Family Wakes Us Up with Matthew Remsky, and he's currently on, at work on a new book on mental health. So hello, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jacob. It's great to be here. So it's really a pleasure to have you on. I myself have read several of your books and uh, found very refreshing your uh, interest in in really making a lot of these ancient yoga and Buddhist teachings relevant for uh, contemporary culture and also at the same time intersecting with those teachings, the the research and and some of the, the philosophy from our own Western tradition. And uh, so for the first question, I I, I sometimes struggle with what should should I start with? And I wanted to talk to you maybe about just the most basic question that there is, which is,
1: uh, what is yoga to you? Well, I've always been interested in the etymology of the term yoga. So Mm -hmm. yoga originally was a verb, which was yuj, which meant to unite or to yoke.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And... What interests me is that when we move out of that verbal form of yuj to the term yoga, there's this sense where yoga might not be doing much of anything, actually. Um, Instead of yoga being about yoking two things together, and maybe your vocabulary is yoking the heart and the mind or the body and God or whatever your vocabulary is, instead I like to sort of exit that binary horizon of yoking two things and instead translate the term yoga as intimacy, Mm. because it gives one more a sense of a practice that doesn't involve joining things, but rather recognizing the inherent intimacy of all things, Mm. meaning that when you look really closely at any one thing, it's drenched with many other things. Mm -hmm. So much so, you could say, there aren't really any things at all. Um, there's just intimacy all the way through. And at a more micro level, I would say, in our relationships or in our bodies, yoga is this, practicing, this practice of learning how to get closer to life. And so as much as I can, I try and put intimacy at the core Of my understanding of practice
0: Mm. Mm. so that's very interesting because that uh, and this is something I wanted to talk about a little bit later but uh, maybe it's a good point now because it's a little bit of um, uh, of uh, a move away from perhaps the more traditional at least if we think in terms of classical yoga's understanding of what yoga entailed it's it's a different direction Uh, I'm thinking a little bit about Edwin Bryant's um translation of 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 yoga in in his um translation of the yoga sutras he talks about how it actually makes sense in terms of classical yoga to think about the yoking was actually a yoking to an object of concentration and what is it at all it was actually an unyoking from the material world which is very very different from i think what you're saying and 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 it, and it also uh, um uh, resonates a little bit with what I was listening to when I was listening to one of your audios earlier. In this, you describe what you're doing along with Matthew Remsky as a new wave of yoga, uh, where you talk about incorporating insights from evidence based practices. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and and how um, maybe this classical yogic understanding is not exactly appropriate for um, a life
1: lived with intimacy. Yeah, I mean, let's follow this theme of intimacy in, you know, responding to this question. And, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk and I can see the ocean. And when I look at the ocean, I'm very aware that the ocean doesn't look for its value outside of itself like we humans do. We want someone to tell us what our value is. We want an authority figure to tell us what our value is. And I've seen practice in my own life as this process of dropping in and recognizing our own nature, recognizing how who we are is a process of being in harmony with the world. And as I age, my understanding of that is really about being compassionate with all aspects of life, which means... We can always get closer to what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And um, when people like Edwin Bryant make this distinction between yoking your attention to the object of meditation and detaching from the world, I don't really understand it. Because in a way... Yoking your attention to anything is yoking your attention to the material world. Mm-hmm. There isn't something we can pay attention to independent of the material world, And we are the material world paying attention to itself. Mm-hmm. So let me give you a really um, clear example of this. is if somebody has some anger arise in the body, then one of the ways we can meditate is we can feel breathing, which is material, feeling, inhaling, and exhaling, until there's some calmness or some stability or balance so that we can get a little bit of distance from the anger and notice anger is there. So we could say the object of meditation is the breath. We're feeling our breathing. And then as anger comes into view, We let go of the breath, and anger becomes the object of meditation. The problem with anger is that when we get consumed by anger, we get filled up with lots of stories. Mm -hmm. So part of meditation practice is to get enough distance from the anger that we can feel anger in the body and just watch our stories of anger from a distance, as if you were sitting in a theater 20 rows back watching the anger. So that's where most meditation techniques end, which is this idea of watching an object or, or staying really connected to an object, but from a distance. Mm-hmm. But when I think about yoga as a practice of in- intimacy, I think there's one more stage that's often not articulated is that when you keep an eye on the anger and you're watching and watching and watching the anger, something happens where it actually, in the space of non-reactivity, the anger actually increases in your body. So that in a way one could say is once you can get stable and notice anger is present, the next phase is just to feel anger in a non-dual way, meaning you feel anger so deeply that there's nobody actually feeling the anger. There's just pure anger. Mm. Now, it's not being acted out because this could be while you're walking or sitting still. But the point is, is that one can be so intimate with anything that there's no you left, you see? Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm always troubled when people talk about meditation as just witnessing something or watching something. To me, that's just the beginning of the process. Mm. So, I mean, I've said a lot of things, but, but to sum up, but it's not that we're detaching from the world, it's that we're letting go of our reactivity. Mm-hmm. We're not letting go of things, we're not letting go of stuff, we're not letting go of what we call the material world, we're letting go of our habitual reactivity. Mm-hmm. And when you let go of your habitual reactivity, You can be much more intimate with what's happening. And what's left when we stop giving ourselves explanations for everything is that we just have our lives. We just have this life and the way it's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that interests me much more than this idea of detaching from the world, whatever that could possibly mean, I don't know. Right. I really like, uh, I think something that you
0: said really resonated, and I think it's rather beautiful, this, this idea that a part of the process of becoming more intimate is actually distancing ourselves. Because, you know, usually when I hear that word distancing, I think, well, I'm actually becoming less intimate, I'm moving away. But there's a sense in which in order to become truly intimate with these emotional experiences in a way that isn't going to, Incite uh, this reactivity that you're talking about. There is a sense of spaciousness that I need to have in relationship to that, to that experience. And, mm-hmm. it, and it reminds me of what you um, were saying. Another thing I heard you say recently in another talk is that how we're responding to what arises in meditation is more important than the actual experience that we're having. And 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 so I, I think you've sort of talked a little bit about this but i'd love to hear you kind of elaborate maybe a little bit on on what that really means
1: well i think that there's a pleasure in letting go of our reactivity
2: Mm.
1: and the way addiction works is we become so comfy with our reactivity that we become addicted to that habit energy you know Mm -hmm. And so part of meditative practice, all contemplative practice, is to clear a space so that from a place of non-reactivity, we can actually feel more deeply and connect more deeply and investigate more deeply what's really going on. Sadness arises, we don't refuse it. Fear arises, we don't refuse it. We, we don't make what the mind is presenting or what the body is presenting wrong. We don't make it wrong. All the stupid things you did, all the things people did to hurt you, none of it's wrong. There, there are no mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have this attitude of non-reactivity, blame starts to soften. Uh, correcting yourself begins to soften. And then we can enter a place before mistakes, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think this is really, really important because otherwise we're operating out of, you know, what we call in psychology our central defense mechanisms, mm-hmm. you know? And maybe someone's defense is to project all the time or maybe someone's defense mechanism is dissociation. Mm-hmm. But either way, when, when, we, when we stay in a place of reactivity... We become rigid over time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we reinforce our defense mechanisms, and then it becomes harder to learn from painful experiences, mm. and it becomes harder to connect with other people, and we just keep chasing. Um, uh, we keep chasing things that really are are not nourishing.
0: Right. And, and you mentioned a little bit, uh, you mentioned before what you said called, that I really liked, the pleasure of letting go of reactivity. But what about the pleasure, which I think you're sort of uh, talking about right now, what about the pleasure of reactivity, or maybe pleasure is the wrong word, but the, the almost seeming... Uh, addiction that we sometimes have to the status quo responses that have become kind of sedimented into our psyche where, whereby we become more uh, contented staying in the kind of familiar familiar grooves that might actually lead to su- suffering rather than kind of move in the direction of transcending those habits which which might for some people be quite scary because it's it's something that they're not used to it's a it's a it's a a new form of self and you know as as you talk about so much there's there's an addiction to this selfing process that i think is is buffered by our neuroses and our attachments and our and our addictions so when when we're dealing with that kind of a situation where does someone begin
1: you know, in, in yoga theory, we have this um, term uh, called samskara. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam is where you get the same prefix um, that we use in English, com, C-O-M, like community or to come together. Mm-hmm. And um, like in, in the position samastitihi, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, skara has in it the root kur, or, which is where we get karma. Um, but it also, some academics suggest, it might be where we get the English word scar. Mm. Um, and so, so you think of this coming together of scars or yeah. coming together of actions. So the thing about sangskaras that are interesting is that it means that we've inherited and we reinforce psychological, physical, ecological grooves in us. In the mind, in the body, in the culture. So, for example, um, if I'm lonely and I can't get online, which is a modern conundrum, then I'll go to the freezer and eat ice cream. Mm. And I'll eat ice cream to try and make the loneliness go away. Um, Intellectually, I might know, oh, God, I shouldn't eat this ice cream. It's going to ruin my digestion. I'm going to feel terrible and I'm going to gain five pounds. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I eat the ice cream. And then when I eat the ice cream, I've created a sangskara or I've reinforced a sangskara so that next time I feel lonely, I'm going to want to have the ice cream, And the more you go through grooves like that, the deeper they get, which is what we call addiction, right? Now, the thing is, is that going for the ice cream is a defense, if you will, against what's actually happening, which is there's loneliness arising. Hmm. If you want to explode this diagram, so to speak, or this metaphor, we could also say that the more ice cream we eat, the more cows we have to produce because we need to produce a lot of cows to produce a lot of ice cream to deal with so many people who don't know how to tolerate loneliness. Mm. You see where I'm going with this? So so, so the samskaras are grooves that are in us, but they're also in the culture. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in a culture that doesn't know how to be bored, we might go more quickly for the ice cream. Yeah. Now, this is why mindfulness practices or yoga practices are political practices. Right. Because if I can recognize that I have this habit of loneliness and I don't go for the ice cream and I sit and I ride the wave of loneliness, I, I sit on my couch, I feel my breathing, and I, or I call a friend and say, please come be with me. I'm really feeling lonely. When I learn how to ride the wave of loneliness, I, I don't reinforce the old sangskara. I actually pioneer or sculpt a new path so that next time the loneliness arises, I have I have a new way of relating to that loneliness, a, a new choice, you see. And then, I, we, you know, I don't need the ice cream. In a, in a perfect world, let's say... We could go have the ice cream and the vegan ice cream or whatever your listeners want. But uh, you, you can go have the ice cream, but there's just no compulsion in it, mm-hmm. you see. So, so back to this idea of pleasure is that the secret of yoga, if there's a secret, is that the pleasure of letting go of the objects that we crave is deeper than the pleasure that the object could have given us. Mm you see that the the, the richness of being able to work with our reactivity is more pleasurable than the ice cream. Mm. You see? Yeah. So again, I want to underline this point that that the thing we let go of is not the ice cream, it's the reactivity. Mm. Because then we're free and we might say, God, I really don't need the ice cream. Or we might say, hey, I'm going to have some ice cream, but there's just no obsession in it. There's no compulsive quality to the action. Yeah. You see, so, and and I'm going to say that this is true for any addiction, you know, let's say the addiction is heroin, you know, Mm -hmm. we go for the heroin because there's something we're really unable to tolerate, Mm -hmm. you know, and as many studies of addiction are showing over and over again, you know, addiction to drugs, for example, like heroin, the heroin addiction is not as physiological as the medical community makes us believe. The, the key to, to working with addiction to heroin, for example, is community. You know, So when you have safe injection sites, for example, um, uh, over, uh, overdose rates really drop. Why? not because something in our physiology changes first, it's because there's community, mm-hmm. right? So, so in a way, you know, part of our practice is figuring out for the addictions that we have, what supports we need, what kind of meditative practices do we need, what kind of communities do we need, what kind of relationships do we need so that we can work with these habits so that we can cultivate this space of non-reactivity wow that's beautiful
0: thank you for that such a beautiful um illustration and one of and something that it makes me think about actually i myself uh spent uh several years with substance abuse issues and i and i um i spent about three years not having anything to drink in order to get a handle on some other substances that i shouldn't have been taking either and i remember very soon after i stopped drinking i i was out with my partner at the time and 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 I would have all these massive mood swings, and and uh, and I and I couldn't really grapple with them. I just didn't I didn't know how to, how to respond. And and at one point he says to me, he turned to me and he said, and he said, are you hungry? And it was the first time that I had realized that. I was I was hungry. I mean, I was get I was hangry basically, and and it just didn't even dawn on me to eat food because normally, if like oh, I feel a mood swing coming on, here I'll have a beverage or I'll you know, this is this was my knee jerk reaction. So, I when you were talking about how, um, you know, there's a sense in which. Uh, all I needed to do was nourish myself, and, and I guess the metaphor in, in these practices is that we turn to mindfulness practices, we turn to meditation, because it's actually the thing that will nourish us and will cause us to feel full in this way. You know, in the same way that I just needed to feel full <laughs> by eating mm-hmm. some food. Mm-hmm. Um so anyway, that just made me think of that. So now I want to shift gears a little bit and, um, and talk to you about your story, your personal story on on how you came to understand yoga and the way you understand it and, and what events and experiences in your life have inspired you to teach.
1: Well, how far back do you want me to go? I mean, when I, when I was a young kid, um, the person who introduced me to yoga as a term and um, as, a, as a kind of philosophy was an uncle of mine who, who was diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia and, and lived in a hospital for most of his life. And uh, I used to spend a lot of time with him starting at about, you know, five years old and visiting him at the hospital starting at about eight or nine years old. And he got me really interested in um, meditation practice and also just, like, looking at my mind and and just thinking. He he would read parts of the Bhagavad Gita or the Dhammapada, and he would just want to know what I thought. Wow. And when you're a little kid and someone wants to know what you think, it's, it's I mean, you never forget that. Yeah. Um, and... You know, also as a young person, I really suffered from a lot of mood stuff. Um, my parents thought maybe I had schizophrenia. Um, you know, I really struggled with depression a lot in high school and university. And um, then I sort of hit rock bottom, I guess. I had I had left university. I had a job I was really unhappy with. And uh, when I was 20, 21... I, um, went, uh, to the forest and I, I, re- I bought a Volkswagen van and I, and I went to the oh, forest goodness. and I said to myself, I'm not leaving here until I can sit still. Wow. So this was like
0: <laughs> in your van, you were sitting still.
1: Yeah. This is, this is like the story of a young man, you know, Yes, of course. and, um, I don't to need any wild. relationships. I'm just going to sit still. And, mm-hmm. And, and I ended up you know staying for, for almost eight months and um, by yourself completely and, alone yeah by myself I, I, I paid a tow truck driver to bring me food. Wow and, um, how old were you? 21 mm. turning 21 between 20 to 21 over that time period and yeah and um, you know, I guess I came out of that process feeling like I wanted to go back to school
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I really wanted to study um, I was reading a lot of Carl Jung and I mm-hmm. wanted to study about I wanted to study Jung I also was starting to practice meditation and yoga uh, so uh, you know so to move ahead you know now I feel like many years have passed so you know I'm, I'm forty two and um, I've been teaching meditation and yoga since, you know, for my whole adult life. Wow. Um, I studied psychology um, academically. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm kind of coming around again, which is I'm starting to think a lot about mental health again. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how... So many of our problems, whether they're related to climate change or economic inequality or the degradation of kind of intimacy in our personal and political lives, you know, I, I really feel like so many of these issues have in them this thread of mental health. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by mental health is just our ability to really trust something sane in us, and trust something sane in other people. And um, so these days, um, I you know teach yoga, I teach meditation practice. I'm a Buddhist teacher, and I teach a lot of retreats. Um, I write. I have three children. <laughs> I have a very full life, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm now coming back to some of the questions I had when I was eight. You know, which is you know what what does it mean to be sane? <laughs> what does it mean to be free? And and does freedom have anything to do with how we feel? Mm-hmm. Or is there a freedom that's kind of deeper than just what we feel mm-hmm. and what we know and what we own and our privilege? So So these are some questions that I'm... I'm thinking about a lot these days, and are are you know deep in my in my in my teaching, of course, also.
0: Could you go a little deeper on on what you mean by freedom being
1: something deeper than simply what you feel? Well, you know, I think that in the yoga community, there's this obsession with feeling good. Mm, yeah. And, um, you know, human beings have this biological drive to feel pleasure. We all want to feel pleasure all the time, you know. Yeah. And I've always thought, you know, it it, it would be a big mistake to build your yoga system around just feeling good. Yeah. Because, you know, in life, we're going to have things happen to the body that we didn't ask for. Mm -hmm. We're going to lose people that we love We're going to be separated from pieces of land that we have really strong connections with. Mm -hmm. And so grief is going to arise. And, you know, the loss of people we love is going to show up. And being dumped is going to happen, you know, and our heart's going to break. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt like if freedom is just dependent on feeling good, that's a pretty superficial freedom definitely and so i'm interested in how when we look really closely at something there's pleasure in it and pain can be in it too just like when you look sometimes really closely at your life it's art Mm -hmm. look closely at art and it's your life or you toss a coin and sometimes it's heads and sometimes it's tails but you can't separate them. The trees in the forest at this time of year where I'm looking are uh, bare of leaves and have a little snow on them. Those are still the same trees of the summer, aren't they? It's still the same tree. The mind that loves and the mind that hates is still the same mind. So there's these, you know, tensions all the time between heads and tails and the things you present and the things you keep secret you know the things that seem inside and the things that seem outside and so when we talk about intimacy it's like we're we're breaking down that way of thinking mm-hmm. so that we can be intimate with what's really showing up moment to moment not our ideas about what's showing up but what's actually happening in our moment to moment experience and to me that space of non reactivity we talked about earlier allows us to be more engaged with what's happening, yeah, more connected to what's happening, and I'm calling that freedom yeah yeah i really I really like what you said about
0: um, the in some instances the yoga community seems to be um, desirous of just this kind of feel good mentality you know we should be feeling blissful and 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 i think you're right and to me I, f- I feel like it incites almost like an escapist mentality and certainly with regards to you know a lot of the things that you're very passionate about social justice issues and issues of the environment and global politics i mean these things are not pleasant i mean they're they're things that really we have to feel very deeply and if our if our call if our practice is calling us to feel good then we're going to want to become averse to these things that perhaps we should be engaged with so there's 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 a sense of 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 escaping from the world and it's very real grittiness that happens that i think you're speaking to when our practice is about uh, you know pleasure or or feeling good or feeling completely blissed out you know Mm -hmm. so
1: um I, I don't wanna I don't wanna discount this idea of bliss. Like mm. there are times in meditative practice where our mind gets really, really still mm-hmm. and a kind of absorption shows up where, so for example, maybe you're staying with the breath, staying with the breath, getting distracted, staying with the breath, coming back over and over. And there's times, especially on retreat, where things get so quiet. That there's actually an experience of pleasure mm. that shows up in that space that is so settling. Sometimes in Zen, it's called the taste that turns you around. Wow. That, that, that you taste something about peace. You taste something of quietude. Mm. That it actually shifts the way you see your own self. Yeah. And we begin to trust in that. So, so I think that there is a, a kind of phase of bliss that's important, but that's not the bliss of ending a yoga class and having an endorphin rush. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and so I think there's like a, I want to say a technical bliss, but, but there's a bliss that arrives in meditative states of stillness. Mm-hmm. It's not the same bliss as running. Um, and, I, and I think that that, Bliss is really worth exploring. That Mm that 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 bliss of of knowing like a clear space. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I don't know if it's in the mind or it's in the body or if it's inside or outside, but there's just a real quietude. And I always tell students, like, it's so important when those moments happen to really know them and let them in Mm -hmm. because it's so rare that we feel in ourselves that everything's okay. Yeah. That everything is okay. And, and, and that's why, you know, often I say to people who say, what's the goal of practice? <laughs> and often I say to people, like, really the goal of practice is for you to become your own teacher mm. so that you know when you're starting to drown how to find that place that you can trust. That place of deep sanity, so that so that your goal is to use your practice to continually learn how to become your own teacher, and you can't. I think you can't do that without a teacher, <laughs> but you know the the teacher is empowering you to become your own teacher, and 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 so I, I say all this because because. I think that bliss is an important I never use the word bliss, but mm-hmm. but but this kind of like real pleasure in a positive sense is a really important phase of practice because it it, it gives us confidence in a balance that we can all find in our mind mm-hmm. that's really hard to feel when we're just caught up in stories and concepts. Mm-hmm. But having said that. That's not the same way people are using the word bliss in many contemporary yoga communities, yeah. which is just I'm so sweaty and half naked, and the person beside <laughs> me is hot, and like the endorphins are spinning, and I go outside and get back on my bicycle, and like the the night is amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's what I think, and that's kind of the, what I was trying to distinguish between, and and you did so well is that. I think that that this word bliss is is often associated with a kind of exactly what you said an endorphin rush it's 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 a it's a kind of buzz or a high and 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 people associate a certain pleasurable quality to it and then when they don't have it then they think they don't have their yoga you know because they've they've somehow you know associated what yoga is with this kind of Um, a very heightened, pleasurable, buzz-like experience.
1: Yeah, and there's going to be times in your life where, you know, your mom's in the hospital and she doesn't remember you and her feet are cold and she needs you to rub her feet and put a blanket on her. Mm -hmm. And she's coming in and out of consciousness or it's post-surgery and she can't communicate with you, and you need to just show up. I mean, I'm just painting one scenario, but you know, we don't know how we're going to need to serve. Mm-hmm. And that's what our practice is about. Our practice is really learning how to serve with whatever's showing up. And if we're obsessed with, Feeling the kind of post-yoga asana hot bliss, I feel like we're really missing a whole other world, a whole other part of the mandala of of our living, and and which is really about other people, mm-hmm. and really about serving other people, mm-hmm. and that's when our practice really deepens. Is it's like, oh wow, there's there's other people. <laughs> there's other people. I can't get happy all by myself.
0: (laughs) And how does this relate a bit to, I wanted to pull this in, something that I really loved um, from one of your TED Talks, this idea of vertical versus horizontal transcendence.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the TED Talk was really fun to do because like any any TED Talk, you know, your goal is to just overstate your (laughs) argument. And, you know, my basic idea for the TED Talk is is the way we think about spirituality is all about transcendence. It's mm-hmm. about trying to get up and out of here. Yeah. And what I was suggesting is that we need to replace this or or merge it with an idea of horizontal transcendence, mm-hmm. which is you know I can't wake up without you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't wake up without me. This is you know in Buddhism, this is called the bodhisattva vow. Mm-hmm. Which is you're walking to the door of enlightenment, you put your hand on the door, and then you look back and you realize, there's all these other people. And if we're all actually interconnected, I can't be free if you're imprisoned. Right. I can't be free if you're not free. So, so I'm going to turn around and I'm going to walk back towards my community, and, and my practice is to help other people awaken, because that helps me wake up. Right. Right. Right, which that sort of
0: connects a little cool. bit to what you were saying about how scars are collective in
1: totally. a certain sense.
0: Because if I, you know, I can work on my own samskaras until I'm blue in the face, but if I'm constantly being re- reinforced by a culture that's, you know, ingrained in particular habits that are going to, you know, draw me back into those habits, then, then you know, I'm back where I was.
1: Yeah, and so at the and yeah, and at, at the end of the talk, or at some point in the talk, I can't remember now, but I I, I coined this term, or I thought I coined the term. I'm sure someone else has coined the term, but a, a, a deep materialism. Yeah, and and what I mean by that is that you know a lot of people think or accuse our culture of being materialistic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but we're not really materialistic because we don't love the material. Right. And loving the material means we don't throw it away. And, you know, part of hipster culture that I actually think is great <laughs> is this kind of, like, interest in craftiness. Mm-hmm. You know, is kind of this, like, like I, I really love motorcycles. So one of the, you know, movements in motorcycle culture these days is you, you you get a motorcycle and you take all the electronic shit off of it. Mm. And um, so you buy a bike from the, you know, late 80s or early 90s, not too old, but also not too new. And, and you take off all the ex- excess electronic crap, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you start to work on it yourself and get your hands dirty and know the machine. So... I mention this because, you know, whether it's an interest in architecture or farmers markets or city planning, sidewalks, rivers, clothing, um, we need to love the material. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this deeper connection and respect for the material is spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And by, by focusing on loving but not clinging to the material... It sidesteps this idea of a spiritual practice that has to get somewhere, mm-hmm. a spiritual practice that's about getting up and out of here. Mm-hmm. There, there is no up and out of here. <laughs> you know, this is this is called ecology, which is when you flush the toilet, it, it doesn't go somewhere else. Right. You know, there's no there's no edge to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that kind of ecological or spiritual understanding is a, is a deeper connection to the, to the material and, and, and caring for the material. And, and, and that's why I gave that talk is to, to, to try and help move beyond this idea of spirituality as being connected to something that's beyond the world. Mm-hmm. Spirituality is a, is, a, is a material practice of being deeply embedded yeah. in the world. There, there isn't another world mm-hmm. you know there, that we know of. There's, there, we have to live uh, in this world at this time with this gender and this climate and etc, and etc. Et and, and how do we do that? And, and that attitude, that attitude makes yoga into a set of tools. That helps us wake up, rather than turning yoga into a belief system. Mm-hmm.
0: But as you say so beautifully, it's not—it's not a waking up to something other. It's a waking up to what's already here, right? So it's a—it's a—it's—it's it's a radical shift in perspective that um, that awakens us to our own
1: experience is really yeah. what I got a lot out of that yeah it's beautiful yeah what do you do you you work with the mind and body and you wake up to your sexuality and you wake up to your digestion and you wake up to the habits in your relationship and you wake up to how some of these stories you tell about your your image are not really yours you just learn them from fashion magazines like the yoga journal or whatever mm-hmm. and and. and and you start to, to use practice to investigate how you function and how you perceive and how you act and the consequences of your actions. And, and in this way, we become more embedded in our relational life through practice. Not not detached, but more embedded. Mm-hmm going back to what you're
0: mentioning about deep materialism, um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, when does deep materialism collapse into a problematic kind of consumerism? Because I imagine those who, who, you know, shop all the time and love to buy clothes, they think that they love the material. But what's the difference between that kind of materialism and the deep materialism that you're speaking about?
1: Uh, that's a really good question. So um, I think it has to do with wanting. Mm. Um, so let's let's back up a little bit. So so I think very much drawing on the Buddha's use of the word dukkha,
2: mm.
1: uh, Patanjali also uh, talks about a suffering, and the way I've translated the term dukkha in the past has been really. One's experience of a sense of lack um, that something's missing. And when you feel in your own heart that something is missing, or you just feel distress or suffering or being unsatisfied, um, it's hard to tolerate. Mm-hmm. And so, because we're hungry, we're hungry for something, we're hungry for a connection. Mm-hmm. And so that drives us to consume, right? Especially if, uh, you know, nowadays, you know, it used to be that you could only, you know, consume stuff or buy stuff during the day. Now it's like you can buy stuff 24 hours a day, you know? yeah. so, so if you're distracted and your attention is unstable, your emotions tend to be a little unstable also if you combine that with a little bit of low self-esteem or a a sense of lack, then you have a recipe for corporations to sell you stuff. Right. Right. So one of the core practices in my understanding of yoga is knowing how to work with craving, Mm -hmm. knowing how to work with wanting. Okay. And, and, how to feel what wanting feels like without acting on it Mm -hmm. okay without acting it out so for example if you walk by a store window and there's like a really great dress and you think oh god i need that dress if i had that dress i would have so many you know friends and people interested in me and whatever and then you say to yourself oh god i can't buy that dress i'm just a yoga teacher i can't be seen in a dress like that <laughs> whatever your story is i can't afford it because i'm just a yoga teacher yeah so you, whatever that. and then you don't buy the dress <laughs> and then you walk away so that's what most people do right mm-hmm. the the problem is is that didn't really teach us how to work with wanting Mm -hmm. It was more conceptual. It was like, oh, I can't afford that. I shouldn't buy that. I don't need that. The the yoga practice is you stand in front of the window, really wanting that dress. And you say to yourself, oh, this is what wanting feels like. Right. So instead of your attention aiming at the dress, you turn the attention, you turn the light inwards Mm -hmm. and you go, oh, wanting. This is what wanting feels like. And you learn how to feel wanting without having to act it out, Mm. you see. Mm -hmm. And what's important about that practice is that it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that that letting go is not letting go of the dress. It's letting go of the compulsive wanting, Mm -hmm. whose root is dukkha, whose root is a dissatisfaction that one might argue, I would argue, is actually sometimes impossible to resolve.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so sometimes we're trying to consume other people. Sometimes we're trying to achieve notoriety. Sometimes we're trying to achieve a certain amount of capital. All of these things that we do to try and ground us but we can't ground ourselves because the self that we are isn't groundable by anything. Mm-hmm. So instead, what we have to learn is how to work with wanting. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier in the ice cream example, the best part is imagine you're walking down the street and you see a dress and then you go, oh, my God, that dress is gorgeous. I wonder who designed that or like look at the color of the the material of the dress. And that, But you don't need it. Hmm. Or you might say, hey, that's a great dress. That would be great at so-and-so's wedding. And, and you know what? I've saved up enough money. I could, I could buy that dress. Hmm. Those examples of relating to the dress are not the same as, i got to have that dress because it's going to ground me.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I,
1: exactly. It's going to ground me because people are going to see me in it or it's going to ground me because it's going to make me find a new lover or it's going to, But all these ways, I think it's going to ground me. It's going to make me feel connected in some way, yeah. And like if if your listeners can relate to this story, I mean, I would encourage everyone to to sort of spend time during the day with this lens, which is like notice when you're a bit charged up about something and say to yourself, oh, this is what wanting feels like. Mm -hmm. And breathe with wanting, which usually only lasts around five minutes until it passes so you can get to know what it's like to be hungry But not necessarily need to satisfy it, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's the working with the with the hunger, the reactivity that's so interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so I want to shift gears a little bit, um, but maybe segueing from this makes sense. From this idea of wanting that we're talking about um, to something that I heard you say. In a, in a talk that I was listening to about the story of separateness that we're, you know, that we're told that's, you know, embedded in our culture, and especially how it's augmented by a life with fossil fuels, I really thought this was very interesting um, that I was listening to. Um, so I'm wondering, what is the relationship between that sense of wanting, that craving hunger, this story of separateness, and then if you want to talk a little bit about how a life with fossil fuels plays into that separateness, um, I think that would be interesting.
1: Wow, that is such a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me. I mean, can I, can I just back up and totally, the, totally, the yeah, do what you need to do. Well, as I said earlier, I really think that there are three issues that are the issues of our era. Mm-hmm. The first issue is climate change, which I actually have stopped calling climate change, and now I just call it global warming. Global warming, yeah. I have oh. a friend that calls it global weirding because it's not yeah. always warm. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's one piece. The, the second issue that is you know close to my heart is uh, economic inequality. Mm-hmm. And the third issue is the, the atrophy of intimacy. Yeah. The atrophy of intimacy. So at a personal level, that means, I think, a losing touch of intimacy with one another and, and with our own bodies. And with different mental states that we encounter, mm-hmm. and at a, a larger level, a loss of intimacy is, is a loss of democracy. Mm-hmm. So those are the three issues, and and so 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 you can you can see fossil fuels in all of them. Yeah, um, and, and I think that what yoga practice offers those issues is number one, um, an awareness that we need to learn how to stop. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, in order to stop, we need a practice. You see, you, you can't just stop. So, for example, if we want to stop um, um, an addiction, you, you can't. <laughs> you can't. Like, tell someone who has OCD to, you know, stop cleaning the cupboard. You know? yeah. <laughs> They're not going to stop, you know. So, so you need a practice. And and the third thing that, that we need is we really need to be able to tell new stories. Mm-hmm. So with fossil fuels, you know, nobody's addicted to oil. I mean, I don't know anyone who gets in their car and they're like, I've gotta get to the gas station, I really want some oil. <laughs> we're we're not addicted to oil, but we're yeah. addicted to a story about sustainability that is outdated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see. Mm-hmm. And, an event, and actually, maybe all of our addictions really at bottom are addictions to stories that are outdated, you know, every addiction that we have. And, and so what can we do about our, um, um, you, know, uh, you know, being in a system that's obsessed with fossil fuels is we need to stop. Mm-hmm. So one way of stopping is not cooperating. Another way of stopping is to collaborate with people who are not cooperating. Another way of stopping is to look really, really closely at your own individual decisions. Mm -hmm. You see? The other thing is, in order to really look closely at your individual decisions and make other choices, you need to be able to have a practice. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You need a practice. Mm -hmm. We need a practice of learning how to cultivate Mm non-reactivity. And then, when you can you know, as I said earlier, clear a space, new stories arise. It's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. This is the funniest thing, is that, you know, a lot of people, or the saddest thing, are like waiting for the new story and the new leader. Yeah. But it's never like that. The, the new stories are always the stories at the outskirts of the culture. Right? They're just not in the mainstream. The new stories are here already, you know. Mm-hmm. They're just at the edges of the, the culture. Right. And, and so now, now let's just go a little more personal. When, when you have an addiction and you're caught in repetitive ways of thinking, like maybe there's a certain story you have about yourself or your body or certain emotions that you can't tolerate. When you have a practice where you can look with more stability at when those things are arising without going off with them or investing in them or looping with them Mm -hmm. you you clear a space and in that space new insights emerge Mm -hmm. new stories emerge and likewise with social with with our society that, that when the society can reduce its reactivity there's room to look at other stories that can emerge you see So so the way I think about it is, is, you know, our our true nature is our capacity for telling new stories. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing how we tell ourselves the same stories over and over and over and over and over, whether they're about fossil fuels or they're about our parents or they're about our siblings. We, we, we We tell ourselves the same comfortable stories and they're killing us. They're mm-hmm. killing
0: us mm-hmm. so you know i'm i'm listening and i'm i'm and i'm thinking about uh sort of because I wanted to move into this discussion of of political issues and 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 I think that what you're saying is really powerful but there's a sense in which it's a it feels like a slow, you know, it feels like a slow process. You know, you're talking about how stories are are being written at the outskirts of society. So there's a there's a kind of um, I don't know, micro political is the right word, but a micro political um, uh, uh, prescription that I hear a little bit in what you're saying. But then, how do you know what? How do we respond to this compulsion to react? Well.
1: Um... <clears throat> Uh, I'm an action kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you settle your reactivity, you're able to pay more attention Mm -hmm. to what's happening in and around you. Um, To me, that's inner work and outer work all at once. And if you go into the world Mm -hmm. and you try and collaborate, you'll recognize that you need a lot of inner work (laughs) to work with other people. Right. Um, I'm not a big fan of all of the issues related to climate change as falling onto the lap of the individual. Right. Um, Changing light bulbs and buying hybrid cars are not going to change much. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I am a big fan of collaboration and building alliances. Mm -hmm. So, for example, like when there's a big march, um, let's say a climate change march or a march for any social justice um, uh, issue, you know, I always encourage people to go mm-hmm. because a march doesn't change anything. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like a politician sitting in his office saying, "Okay, yes, they're all marching. We should change this bill." You know? Yeah. But what a march does <laughs> is it is it is it makes you feel like you're part of something bigger. Yeah. And it helps you build alliances. And your body actually bumps into other people's bodies. Mm -hmm. And you meet people. And now, I'm just using a march as an example of how the way things are changing is through alliance building. Mm -hmm. And through education and through recognizing that the solutions to our economic problems and our social problems and our psychological problems and our spiritual problems are all interconnected because those problems are all interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so what inspires me these days is to see groups having this transdisciplinary language Mm -hmm. for seeing how stopping pipelines brings up the most important issues around indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. And it's actually indigenous women who are blocking pipelines in Western Canada, for example. Mm. So suddenly an environmental issue is a social justice issue that has to do with repairing relationships that goes go back centuries. Yeah. So, uh, so I use that as an example because... To me, that's a yogic understanding. That's a, Is kaleidoscopic a world? It's a, it's a kaleidoscopic <laughs> understanding. It's an ecological understanding, which is that these issues are not separate. Mm. You can't talk about environmental problems without talking about social justice, without talking about the economy, mm-hmm. without talking about mental health. Yeah. They're deeply interconnected. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to figure that out by yourself, (laughs) you see, so if you hurt your left hand, your right hand quickly comes over to grab your left hand, Mm -hmm. it doesn't think about it, you see, so so we're training in yoga practice to have a more, you know, a compassionate reflex, Mm -hmm. so when we see something troubling us, we do something about it. We take action, we do something about it, yeah, you see
0: now, I wanted to ask, uh, actually ask you, and this might go back a little bit, but just about mental health, it, it makes me think about our habitual way of responding to mental health that's you know very popular right now, which is to pathologize mental health and to respond to that pathology with um, pharmaceuticals so there's this, you know there's a sense in which people don't understand the cultural um, collective samskatas that might be, uh, you know, breeding some of the mental health issues that we have, and we're led or we're invited to think that all of our mental health problems are reducible to some kind of brain chemistry event. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious what your response is to how we begin to kind of move away from that or, or how you feel like uh, the, this kind of approach to mental health is actually inhibiting our ability to contextualize and to see how that mental health is, is just as you're saying, integrated, interconnected with all of these other issues.
1: Yeah, that's a very, very good uh, question. Um, I think, I think it's important just to kind of back up Mm -hmm. in terms of you know how we relate to our problems mm-hmm. in our in our practice you know one of the things I've really learned from sitting still <laughs> is that sometimes going more deeply into your problems which is the standard approach of most therapy and mm-hmm. um, can be a way of investigating what you know already, you see. Mm -hmm. So in a way, like when I sit in meditation practice, I try not to get into my problems so much. I try to notice that there's difficulties and open to those difficulties, but not to all my stories about those difficulties. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, in a way, I'm focusing more on the movement of what's arising rather than the content, Mm -hmm. you see? Mm -hmm. So, that's taught me a lot about when I had to work with strong emotions or depression, which is something I've had to work with my whole life. um, Is, you know, so because depression is very much characterized by rumination, for example, Mm. is, is how to really work with the mental habits and come back to the breath, for example, and not go so deeply into that whole fantasy of trying to use meditation to fix my problems. Yeah. You see? It's just about being intimate with maybe a hell realm. You see? So so that's kind of how I approach things, and then it's different for different people. So some people in that hell realm, there might be some lessons that they need to really explore some insights that they might want to unpack um, and that's for most people then there's also acute phases of depression for example where somebody can't get enough stability to work with their mind mm-hmm. they can't and if that goes on for a while I might recommend medication mm-hmm. so you and I could both have a very you know a productive conversation about that are over-medicalized culture. Yeah. But I also feel like in the yoga community, there's a real anti-pharmaceutical stance. Yeah. And, and I kind of want to push back <laughs> against that a little bit mm-hmm. because I work with a lot of people who are interested in working with the content or whatever is showing up for them, and they can't because the anxiety levels are just too high. Right. Or the rumination is just so stuck to their face mm-hmm. that they can't get any distance yeah. to see it happening. So in those cases, I say use the meds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like somebody who is in a lot of pain, you know, if you have pain meds, use them. They they don't they don't get rid of the pain, but they they might decrease it enough that then you can use your practice. Mm-hmm. You see so i 'm actually a big fan of pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. in the right moments right yeah' I'm re- at the
0: right times mm-hmm. yeah i 'm really glad you said that because I certainly wouldn 't want to imply that you know that there aren 't people who benefit from from these medications I, de- I think you 're definitely right that there there are times in which it 's you know important and timely and practical for somebody to be prescribed a certain medication given their their symptoms. I think it is uh, you know just generally an over prescribed uh, you know phenomenon and then especially and then, amongst kids yeah and and, and 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 there just isn't a thought to other methods at all because 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 the idea or the mythology is that this is a brain. This is a brain chemistry matter. It's a problem in the brain. It's a disease in the brain. And the only way we're going to affect that is by, you know, putting some chemical in there to ba- you know, to balance it out. This idea of the chemical imbalance. So, so I guess yeah. I, I'm glad you sort of um, pointed out that distinction. Okay. So this has been you know such a wonderful discussion, Michael. And thank you for sharing so much of your wisdom. It's really been really illuminating. A lot of the things that you've shared. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if we maybe have time for it, if you would maybe want to share like a five minute practice or short meditation. Um, if you think it's, uh, if you think it makes sense to do a short practice in that amount of time, I know sometimes it's, you need a little
1: bit longer. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I can describe a practice related to what we were talking about earlier. That would be Great. So the practice I recommend you can do a few times of the day, it's called riding the lively wave. When you feel a strong craving or strong reactivity, sit down in a chair or on your couch or on the floor, feel your breathing, and let the energy of reactivity arise and erupt in your body and ride it for five minutes. Know what reactivity feels like. So you say, okay, I'm really hungry right now. I'm really, really hungry. I'm gonna sit down, gonna find my breathing, I'm not gonna manipulate my breath like Ujjayi Pranayama or something. I'm just gonna feel a relaxed breathing, body just naturally breathing. And alongside the breath, the energy of wanting is gonna really erupt. I want something pleasurable. I wanna send an email. I wanna get back on my phone. I want to go for a run. I want chocolate. I want sugar. I want to say something to so-and-so. And instead, you just sit there and you ride the wanting, which really transforms after five minutes. And that way, you get used to feeling what it's like to have craving and to not acting on it. And what's really interesting, people who have uh, substance misuse issues really, really respond to this. And they always say, wow, when I do that, I realize I can have power over my wanting,
2: hmm.
1: over my craving. And so I always say to people, choose like a medium craving, <laughs> like not, <laughs> not the most intense one you have. And, and, you know, two or three times a day, um, sit down and just try this out. And that way, um, if you do this every day for a couple weeks, when in the day a strong craving arises, you'll have this practice that you can use to work with it. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you.
0: Uh, and this is in addition to a meditation practice that you might have. Definitely. Yes. Great. Wow. Thank you, Michael, for that. So I have just a couple final questions. The first one is just um, how can people hear more about you? Um, Websites that you have, projects that are coming up.
1: I have a website, which is michaelstoneteaching.com. The website has lots and lots of free material, podcasts and archives of talks and articles and videos, And all those podcasts are also available through SoundCloud or iTunes, if you just look up Michael Stone. Um, The podcasts have a really popular weekly listenership. Pretty much everything I teach gets recorded and put on the podcast, um, and has since about 2006 or 2007. Wow. So there's lots of material there. Wow, you got on board early with the podcast. I did, Yeah. (laughs) Or I gave up my anonymity early, which is don't want to say it. And then um, I'm on Facebook and I love Instagram. And um, uh, my what your, what's your Instagram tag? I think it's just Michael Stone Teaching. Okay. And my Twitter handle is, I think, underscore Michael Stone. Okay. And um, my, my, I want to tell you about my New Year's resolution. Yes, please. I, I have a kind of contrarian New Year's resolution, which <laughs> my resolution is to tweet twice a day <laughs> issues about mental health. Oh, wow. So, so if you're on Twitter, um, find me on Twitter and join the conversation. Um, every day, twice a day, I've been tweeting about mental health. And part of this, As I said earlier, mental health is a theme that I'm coming back to now that I think started me on this path, and I'm also writing a book right now, the um, the first time I've written a sort of more popular book about mental health and psychology. Wow. Do you have a title for that book yet? I do have a title. The working title right now is called The National Parks of the Mind. Oh, wow. That's
0: a nice Um, image. a field guide to mental states. Oh, that's beautiful. National Parks of the Mind. So, uh, and then, I know you do a lot of retreats.
1: Is there a retreat
0: coming up that the listeners might be interested in checking out? I teach four
1: silent meditation retreats a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I have them in New York State, in Western Canada, in France. Um, you can find them on my website. That's really my my favorite time of the year is formal silent meditation retreats. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I teach uh, yoga and meditation workshops all over the world, So um, I teach all over the United States. I teach a lot in Europe. I teach throughout Canada. I'm always on the road, it seems. Mm. And uh, if you go on my website, michaelstoneteaching.com, you'll see in the um, uh, schedule section that there are lots of workshops and intensives I have uh, that that cover many different kind of aspects of what I teach.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And uh, are you planning any trips to New York City coming up?
1: Nearby. I don't have a trip to New York. I teach an annual silent meditation retreat over New Year's in upstate New York. Oh. It's my favorite thing. Where in upstate New York? Uh, it's halfway between Rochester and Buffalo in Batavia. Okay and um, I actually just came back from that. so oh, nice. So um, I teach there regularly, so oh, beautiful. Yeah, I love upstate. I okay. went to school. I did my
0: first undergrad in Ithaca. Oh, I love it Thank yeah it 's so beautiful Great place. yeah <clears throat> okay, and then lastly there's uh, one of the resources that I have created for the website is like what I call the embodied philosopher's library and it 's basically um, an annotated bibliography of all of the kind of spiritual or wisdom texts that I wish that I had um, known about when I was first kind of interested in exploring all of this wisdom, so I always ask the people that I interview if they would mind sharing a couple books that um, have been really kind of, you know, uh, crucial texts in their own development or in your own path. I, all of your texts are, all of your books are already on there, so you don't have to worry about sharing your own. But um, if you want to
1: share another uh, book or two for the listeners, that'd be great. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, so, so some of my favorite books that I'm I'm into right now, one is called After Buddhism, mm. written by... Um, uh, a friend of mine named Stephen Batchelor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also reading a fantastic philosophy book called uh, "Hyper Objects" Ooh. by a great philosopher, um, contemporary philosopher named Timothy Morton, who also happens to be a practitioner, um, huh. whose whose work I really love. What was and the name th- again? Sorry, Hyper Objects. And then and the name of the author, Timothy Morton. Timothy and Martin, and you know actually. what? It, it turns out someone told me recently that that's where Bjork got the term hyperballad. No, that record that made her so famous. She got it from Timothy Morton. Apparently, someone said that. I, I know that they are friends, so it might be true. Wow. And then um, uh, I really. Uh, um, love the book uh, Zen mind beginner's Mind by Shinru Suzuki I feel like I reread that book every year um, Shinru Suzuki and uh, and then um, um, I could keep going but but that's a that's, that's a good, really good that's a good great amount uh, thank
0: you so much for that awesome yeah well, thank you so much, Michael. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Um, I really think our listeners are going to really get a lot from this interview. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And, uh, and, uh, and good luck with your new baby. And happy new year. Thank you so much, Jacob. And no I'm problem. really, really supportive of what you're doing. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Hi, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Stone. If you're interested in learning more about Michael, you can check out his website that he mentioned there at the end. It's MichaelStoneTeaching.com. You can also subscribe to him on iTunes, and his podcast on iTunes has a lot of his um, recorded talks, even ones often from his retreats as well. So that's a really great resource if you'd like to uh, listen to more of Michael's teachings.